We are continuing our series in Acts, and today we'll be spending most of our time in Acts chapter 17. Uh, What we'll encounter in Acts 17 is actually one of the most famous sermons that are recorded in the New Testament. Uh, A quarter of the narrative in the book of Acts is speeches. And so it's inevitable that from time to time we'll have to have a sermon about a sermon. So that's what we're doing today. And this sermon in particular is famously called the Mars Hill Sermon that the Apostle Paul preaches. It's certainly one of uh, Paul's most dramatic sermons that, that are recorded in the Bible. And by looking at this sermon and the types of people who respond to it, we can actually learn a lot about the good news. So we'll talk about it actually in that order. First, what we can learn from the message itself, and then second, what we can learn about the people who respond to it according to Luke. So first, let's settle into some context here. So let's, uh, let's set up where we are in Acts 17. So the narrative begins in this chapter where Paul and his co-workers uh, travel to Thessalonica, so that's in northern Greece, and as is his habit, he preaches the gospel there both to Jews and Gentiles, and he gets a mixed to hostile response. A riot breaks out, and uh, consequently, as part of that riot, Paul slinks out under the cover of night and goes to Berea. So in Berea, he continues his pattern of preaching the gospel to the the people in that community, and he actually gets a much warmer reception in Berea than he did in Thessalonica. That is, until his opponents from Thessalonica hear about what he's been doing in Berea, and they travel over there and confront him, and then basically a riot breaks out again, and Paul has to, by himself, slink out again and head over to Athens. So while he's in Athens, he's waiting for his other co-workers to catch up with him, in this case, Timothy and Silas. So when he's in Athens, waiting for his, his colleagues to join him, uh, he continues his practice of engaging both Jews and Gentiles in the community with the good news about Jesus. But being in Athens provokes something unique in Paul that apparently these other cities he'd been traveling to hadn't been doing. So let's jump into Acts 17. Uh, We'll start in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. Those terms are interchangeable, just depending on whether it's the Greek term or the Latin term. So they took him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know uh, that what this new teaching is that you are preaching? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This sermon is beautiful to me, but it's taken me years to really appreciate it. And that's because a common way that many Christians understand this sermon, the way that it's framed for them when they read it, is that it's a jab at the intellectual and philosophical pursuits of those Greeks that were sitting around in Areopagus. After all, uh, Luke says that they just sit around talking and debating strange ideas. All they want to do is hear new things. A good thing old Paul was there to say, no, you need to believe in Jesus and he's going to judge you. So there. And after all, Paul of all people knows, right, that knowledge puffs up and that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, right? That's what Paul says. And besides, Jesus never went to no fancy rabbi school and the disciples were all uneducated fishermen, right? Thank God the plain spoken Paul was there to engage these intellectual philosophers in the Areopagus. Is that what's going on here? Because that framing makes it sound like that we're saying that the good news is anti-intellectual. Is it? I would understand if that is the impression you've gotten. I have some friends who are Christians and non-Christians, especially in academia, who have confided in me that the way they have typically understood this story, they would rather hang out with the people in the Areopagus than people at church because they feel like they wouldn't have to turn their mind off in order to hang out with the one over the other. And, and I get that. You know, for a lot of Christians, the default posture towards higher learning or scholarship is one of fear and hostility. There's a historian, Mark Knoll, who is an evangelical himself, who's a, a historian particularly on this subject, how it got to be this way, that so many Christians in America have this kind of attitude towards higher learning. And one of the ways that he talks about historically how we got here is um, in the books, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He says, the, this dogmatic kind of biblical literalism that gained increasing strength among evangelicals toward the end of the 19th century resulted in reduced space for academic debate, intellectual experimentation, and nuanced discrimination between shades of opinion. He summarizes it uh, in one of the most famous quotes from this book. The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. 
And this, uh, th- this way of understanding how we got to where we are actually resonates with me. And I, I know that it actually resonates with experiences that a lot of you have had. I'll give you an example uh, that, that epitomizes this for me. So several years ago, uh, back in the Chicago suburbs in Christine's in my hometown, uh, I was at a church where uh, it was going to be announced that I was moving out of Chicago to come all the way out here to go to grad school and get my Ph.D. at Stanford. So that was what the announcement was going to be. And uh, when, when they actually announced that, um, you would think that a typical response to something like that is to cheer or to, you know, clap or, you know, praise God, all of those things. Um, that is, that, that's the natural response. Uh, our sparker, Lauren Chan, is going off to Yale uh, at the end of this summer. What is the appropriate response to that? Exactly. It's, it's natural. I don't have to teach you to, to react that way. You know, what the reaction when, I, when it was announced at that church was back, back in uh, the Chicago suburbs, the reaction was audible gasps. It actually sounded similar to when that church announced that I had shingles. So that's like, this, this is what I'm, like, the reactions that I'm working from. And afterwards, uh, after that announcement and after church was, church was done, an acquaintance of mine um, who didn't talk to very frequently came up to me in a very sweet and sincere, earnest way and said that he, he was really concerned uh, about these, uh, these three strikes that he perceived that were going to go against my faith. Uh, one thing he said was that I was moving to California, and that was going to be a challenge for my faith. Another thing he said was that I was going to pursue just higher learning in general. He perceived that as something dangerous to watch out for. And then the third was that it was at Stanford in particular. And he told me that with three strikes already against me, that he would be praying for me and that he was very concerned and he felt like he just had to say it before I left. That is a common reaction that I have gotten over the years in many circles of Christianity that we tend to run in. That fear that higher learning is an enemy of faith is unfortunate. It's also largely unfounded. There's a sociologist, Brad Wright, who's a professor at the University of Connecticut, who compiled all this research on just the the actual relationship between Christianity and American culture, and he uh, submitted several claims that are commonly accepted by many of us to empirical scrutiny through like data and data sets and survey data to actually see uh, whether, whether a lot of myths that we carry around are true. So one of those myths is that um, faith and education don't mix and that the more educated you are, the more dangerous it is for, for one's evangelical faith. And in reality, you'll see that that's actually not true. In fact, the opposite is true. So you knew this if we were going to do a lesson about uh, engaging the intellect that we were going to have to have a chart or a graph of some kind. So you'll see that there, there are several different ways that in survey research that people can measure like how religious people are. So these are uh, examples are, you know, if you were, your likelihood of saying religion is very important in survey, uh, how certain you are that you believe in God, you know, how often you attend church and um, how often you pray outside of church. So they, these are different questions that they ask. And what you'll notice is for each of those three groups that we're looking at based on their level of education, the more education you have, the more likely you are to say you engage in these behaviors. This is one example of a compelling set of research that's beginning to say that, that um, maybe that idea that you know, faith and intellect and reason or faith and higher education are enemies is, is not actually true. In fact, uh, in fact quite the opposite. 
you know, even that characterization of how, how I described, you know, Jesus, the early Jesus followers and their level of, of education, even that's unfounded. Because although there is debate about how formal Jesus's own education was, which I'm not going to weigh into, and from Luke's own description earlier in Acts, it does look like at least some of the apostles who were preaching the good news had no formal theological training. But at least one, for one apostle, Paul, there's no question if he was highly educated, if he received formal theological training, or if he went to a fancy rabbi school. The answer is he did, and he did, and he did. Moreover, scholars generally agree that Luke himself, the author of our text, uh, was a physician and was very well educated as evidenced by his rhetorical style. And the author of Hebrews, whoever she or he is, is considered a first-class, well-educated Greek rhetorician. What that says is that most of the New Testament was written by people who could hang with the Athenian philosophers and might have even enjoyed it, you know, because they can engage in that way of thinking. So when Paul makes uh, seemingly anti-intellectual statements like knowledge puffs up, what is he really saying? I think this is another misconception that we have to correct. You know, when Paul says knowledge puffs up, it's helpful to look at it in context. The very next thing he says after it is knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Another very famous passage in 1 Corinthians that draws this contrast between knowledge and love comes in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So when Paul is worried about knowledge, is he talking about that he's worried about intellectual pursuits, or is he worried about a knowledge that leads to a kind of arrogance that causes you to be unloving to your brothers and sisters in Christ and the people who don't have the same knowledge that you do? Uh, An author that's beloved by many sparkers summarizes it very well. You can either practice being right or practice being kind. That is what Paul is driving at when he's talking about the challenge of knowledge leading to arrogance. I find it ironic that often the same Christians who vehemently warn us that knowledge leads to arrogance are the same ones who tend to be the most dogmatic about their knowledge about God and end up having some of the most unloving attitudes towards people who they disagree with. I think a much better attitude is one that we we often talk about. It's a joke from a famous New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, who says, 20% of everything I say is wrong. The problem is I don't know which 20%. That kind of epistemological humility, in other words, humility about knowing what you know, is very helpful. And that posture can often help with a lot of the arrogant tendencies that come with being so certain about your opinions about God. Another attitude that is expressed very well is in the quotation, all truth is God's truth. That's from Arthur Holmes, who is a philosopher and professor at Wheaton College uh, throughout the 20th century. And this, this statement can be very challenging to a lot of people who operate with the mindset that really all knowledge is summed up in what you, is revealed to you in the Bible and what you can be certain about in the Bible. It often cuts off an appreciation of knowledge that you can gain from fields that are completely unrelated to the Bible. But what this idea does to say that all truth is God's truth, that is, no matter what area of inquiry you're pursuing, science, 
arts, uh, literature, um, engineering, anything like that. What you're doing is understanding God's creation. You're understanding God himself better. That is what's going on when you pursue truth. And you're open to the idea that your thoughts about God can benefit from engaging with people who have a way of knowing that comes from outside of the Bible. I think that Paul is able to capture that really well. So now that we've kind of cleared out some of the baggage that goes with an anti-intellectual approach to, uh, to understanding this sermon, I think we can uh, start looking at um, just the beauty of what Paul is actually doing in this sermon. You know, as a good first century monotheistic Jew, you'd expect Paul to express disgust at these philosophers for their rampant uh, polytheistic, uh, uh, polytheism and idol worship. Instead, what does he do? How does he express how he feels about his audience? This is one part of his sermon where he says, God did this when he's describing God's creation of the world and having humanity spread through it. He said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. When he sets up this framing of, you know, to, to identify with his audience, to say that we are God's offspring, he actually says, you know, the, the opening line of a sermon is to say, this God that you worship, I am proclaiming to you. That is an enormous move on the part of Paul that I don't think a lot of us appreciate. I have heard and been in a lot of discussions about, you know, whether Christians and Jews and Muslims can really say they all worship the same God or believe in the same God. And, um, you know, does group X and group Y, do they, do they worship the same God and all of that kind of stuff? And here is Paul in identifying with his polytheistic, idol-worshiping audience to say as a starting point, I see that you're very religious and I want to talk to you about this God that you worship. That is beautiful, common ground that he's finding with them. And now he's framed the discussion to say, I know something about this God that I think you may want to know. That's how he goes at this. Not only that, his truths or what he's willing to say he has learned about God is not at all limited to his Jewish background or to his, uh, what he learned in rabbinical school. Because these two quotes that come in, in this little section of Acts 17, they are truths about God that are expressed by Greek philosophers and poets themselves. For in him we live and move and have our being, is a quote from Epimenides, who's a 6th century B.C. Greek philosopher. And that other quote where he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, that's from Eratus, the 3rd century B.C. Greek poet. To say that his idea of us being offspring of God comes from this poet's understanding is breathtaking, especially considering where it would have hit his audience that he was talking to. I think that 
once we, can, uh, once we can really understand the framing of what Paul is saying to the Areopagus, and we don't see the Areopagus as uh, the people there as uh, villains who need to be shown what's what, and see them the way Paul sees them, as people who enjoy engaging in their thoughts about God, and we can see them that way the way that Paul does, it really opens up a world of looking at that sermon as a way of finding commonality, finding truth wherever you can, and resonating with audiences uh, of diverse backgrounds when you're talking about the good news. You can ask then, you know, would Paul say that the good news is anti-intellectual? No. I think from this sermon, it makes it clear that the good news embraces intellect. It flourishes under the kind of inquiry that Paul is engaging in at the Areopagus. Now, that's how we can think about this lesson in the good news and intellect. Now let's talk about the good news and women. That may seem like a very weird transition, like how on earth are those two connected? And uh, they're connected because I mentioned at the beginning that we're going to talk about two parts. One is what we can learn about the good news uh, as it relates to the message itself, and then what we can learn about the good news based on who Luke says is responding to the good news in these three, er- these, uh, three regions where Paul proclaims the gospel. So here's a summary of each of those places in just this chapter that we read where Paul proclaims the gospel and then Luke describes who responds. So when he preached in Thessalonica, uh, Luke says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. After Berea, uh, Luke says, as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. And then lastly, in Athens, this is the one that we read at the end. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was, was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now you know why I brought up the relationship between the good news and women. Notice the pattern? We have prominent women responding to the gospel in every single situation, and Luke is specifically calling them out. Now, you may look at that shout-out, the way that I've pointed out, and say, that's really nice. Good, good for Luke. But I would respond, no, no, no. I don't think you understand and appreciate how significant it is for Luke in his time and in his place to call out that the people who were responding to the good news in these regions included prominent women. In the space that Luke has to write, he includes these people. To really appreciate what Luke is doing by calling out these women, we're going to have to do a a little dip into the world of textual criticism. So textual criticism involves this this, uh, world of you, you look at manuscripts, ancient manuscripts like New Testament documents, and you see how they're copied over time by scribes, right? The, generally, the goal of a scribe is to, is to copy a text over exactly how they received it and pass it on. But in that process, it's inevitable that deletions and errors occur. Somebody has a typo um, or they, uh, the, the scribe changes something because they don't like what they're seeing or because they think that there's no way the original text could have said this, so they go ahead and make a change. Even when there are typos and you you find uh, typos and other errors in text, scribes have a general impulse to copy that typo and pass it on because of the idea that like fixing that that typo could uh, open other doors of incorrections and just make things worse. The safer route is to just copy it over and over. 
So in that world, what you can do is if, if you can, uh, you, if you can, if you have enough data, you can track where these copies are floating around in the ancient world. So because if a, a copyist has one error and then they pass that, that document on to somebody else, they will copy that error over and then they may move somewhere else and so on. And you can actually see like, oh, this region uh, in the Mediterranean tends to have like the, this same text type or this same textual tradition. And that's what's going on in the, with the New Testament documents as well. And so in order for us to, to really appreciate um, what's going on with uh, these audiences that are responding to the gospel that Luke describes, I want us to look at one particular textual tradition that occurs uh, in, the, er, in early church history. And that text tradition is called the Western text. It's called that because these were the manuscripts that were circulated um, throughout the Western Roman Empire. And uh, that the, these manuscripts then, because they were circulated throughout the Western Roman Empire, were the Bible. This, these were the Bible for the, many of the early church fathers, some of the most famous ones that we have, some of the early f- church fathers who had a significant impact on Western Christianity as a whole. So the Western text um, can be compared to other manuscripts that we have from other areas that weren't circulated throughout the Western, uh, other texts that weren't circulated throughout the Western uh, Roman Empire. So some of these uh, oldest, older texts read um, the, you know, that first response in, in Thessalonica um, like this. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Right? That's, and that's most of your Bibles will say that. That was the text as we read it. So this Western text that got a lot of circulation throughout the, the Roman Empire says this. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined, you can see, and wives of prominent men. You see that, that switch that happened? What is that? The other response in Berea, as a result, many of, the, many of them believed. And so you see again, prominent Greek women called out. Here's how the Western text described it, as did also a number of prominent Greek men and women. So they just get, this time the, the prominent Greek women don't get demoted, but, but you got to throw in the men there to balance it out. And then uh, and the, that response to Paul's sermon in Athens, some of the people believed and became followers. And here you have a woman named Damaris called out by name in an ancient text about responding to the good news. And here's how the Western text has it says among them was Dionysius, a prominent member of the Areopagus, and a number of others. They just straight up deleted Damaris from that text, and the person who's prominent is now the man, Dionysius. I see this, and my reaction is, oh no, he didn't. That scribe did not do that. And yet that's what happened. And this was the Bible that many early church fathers were reading from. Many Christians for centuries had access to this, and this is how Acts 17 was reading to them. And of course, your views on the, you know, the role that women can play or can't play in the good news would not just have been shaped by this chapter, but when you can make subtle changes like this to a text, it can speak volumes about what you think about half of the people in this planet who proclaim uh, Jesus to others. I wish that this is as bad as it got, but it actually gets worse because they they go after my girl Priscilla. 
So in the next, uh, right, right after this response in Athens, the narrative in Acts continues in chapter 18. So this is what uh, older texts read. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. The Western text changes the tent makers to just Aquila. It just, instead of they, it becomes one person, it becomes he. It gets even worse. Later on, when, uh, when Acts is describing, in Acts 18, they're describing a, a scene where Apollos uh, powerfully proclaims the good news, albeit he doesn't have a full understanding um, to his fellow Jews. Aquila and Priscilla approach him to teach him a, a more fuller understanding of the good news. So it says, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I bet you can predict what happened here. And the name gets flipped. Aquila's name gets put before Priscilla. Now, if your goal was to make no changes at all, or even just make minimal changes to a text to make it more sensible, the kinds of changes that you're seeing in this Western text are unbelievable. And yet, this is what happened. This is uh, uh, Ben Witherington, who's a famous New Testament scholar, summarized these data in his paper, Anti-Feminist Tendencies in the Western Text. And he said, in view of the uh, above evidence, it appears that there was a concerted effort by some part of the church, perhaps as early as the late first century or beginning of the second, to tone down texts in Luke's second volume that indicated that women played an important or prominent part in the early days of of the Christian community. Well, thank God for Luke and for textual criticism, because Luke himself has no problem with women playing a prominent role in the Jesus movement and proclaiming the gospel at every opportunity they can. You know, Acts 17 then teaches us that good news embraces women just as it embraces intellect, even if surrounding culture or subsequent centuries of church history struggle to live up to that We have the older texts. We have the voice of Luke himself telling us otherwise. And in these sermons that occur in Acts 17 and in 18, you can get a full appreciation for what it means to to have the good news really resonate with one's mind and with men and women alike. So bring it all together. This section of Acts that we just talked about today, it underscores that the good news is for everyone, Jew or Greek. Paul preaches to both audiences. It's to be proclaimed by anyone, male or female, we have Aquila or Priscilla, by anyone formally educated like Paul or not formally educated like Peter and John earlier in Acts. It's to be proclaimed anywhere in a private conversation like Aquila and Priscilla do with Apollos at church like Paul does with his fellow Jews in synagogues or in a large crowd in a city center like Paul does with his fellow philosophers, and is to be proclaimed with everything we have. When we think of everything we have, the words heart, soul, and strength come to mind, but surely, surely, we mean it comes with your mind too. What Paul is doing in Acts 17, in his sermon at Mars Hill, is he's engaging his audience with the full faculties he has available in his mind. And we should embrace it and not downplay it or shy away from it. 
Now, I know that we have a lot of people in our community who've been burned by anti-intellectual or fundamentalist ways of proclaiming the good news. Uh, I get that. And I know that um, for, for the people in our community who are burned by it, uh, you mean that you're, you used to do that yourself and you're burned by it and you used to hear it all the time. You're burned by that and you don't want to deal with it anymore. And I know that that's challenging uh, and I get it. I've heard some of you say consequently that you're not sure what it looks like to proclaim the good news in the context that you live in today, but all you know is that you don't want to proclaim it the way either you used to proclaim it or the way you used to hear it. And I get that too. That is super challenging to try to figure out how it is that, uh, what it looks like to proclaim the good news to my coworkers, um, to my friends, to my relatives, to people in my own church, when we all have such varying diverse backgrounds and varying um, interests in so many ways. But if Acts 17 teaches us anything, it's that followers of Jesus like Paul are totally up for the task. That's why I'm actually optimistic when I see that challenge presented for people in our community, because Paul's sermon teaches us that the good news can be presented in unprecedented and beautiful ways when great minds can lock in on it. And Spark, I think many of us will agree, has been gifted with a collection of great minds. It's certainly the most brain power at a church I've ever been a part of. So I'm excited when I think about all of the diverse talents that we have available to us to see all of the ways in the, ways in the future and in the days to come about the ways that we can share the good news together to whoever we come across. Thank you.